0: Welcome back to the Messy Reformation. My name's Jason Rice. I'm the lead pastor at Faith Community CRC in Beaverdam, Wisconsin. My co host is Willie Cronkie. He's a member at Pease CRC in Pease, Minnesota. We're just a couple of guys who love the Christian Reformed Church and want to see Reformation happen in our denomination. But we realize that whenever Reformation happens in the history of the church, things get messy. And after this past synod, things are really starting to get messy in the Christian Reformed Church. So we're taking the opportunity to have conversations with pastors throughout the Christian Reformed Church to find out what's going on in our denomination, but also to talk about what Reformation might look like. And for the next few months, we're going to focus particularly on delegates from this past synod to talk about what just happened and where we might be going in the future. If you haven't already, take a moment, click subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming content. We are dropping episodes every single Monday. We also want to say thank you to everyone who has sponsored us over on Patreon. We are slowly making our way toward our modest goal of 20 sponsors at $5 a month. So if you appreciate what we're doing and want to help us continue to put out content, head on over to patreon.com backslash TheMessyReformation. We've also created a Facebook page where we're putting out additional content, and we'd love for you to find us at facebook.com backslash the Messy reformation and like our page for more updates. With all that said, we're going to get to this week's episode, which is part one of Synod Reflections from Andy Seitzma. So, Andy, why don't you kick us off, uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, your what church you're serving and your family.
1: Yeah, thanks, Jason. So my name is Andy Seitzma. I'm pastor at New Life CRC down in Spring, Texas. That's just outside of Houston. And i um, been in ministry 25 years, so 13 of those here in Texas. Uh, prior to that, my family and I were in northern New Jersey, uh, pastor of a rebirth church that I uh, came to be known as Bridgeway Community CRC. And then, right out of seminary for a couple of years, I was an intern and resident at a home missions church plant in Seattle. It's called Emmaus Road CRC. And that's still going as well. So, that's a little bit about my, my pastor role um, in my family. My wife and I, my wife Jackie, and I have been married 28 years this summer. And um, she's um, a teacher at a local Christian classical school just down the road. We have two kids, Natalie and Caleb, and Natalie's going to be a senior at Calvin University. She's majoring in classics and literature, and then our son Caleb is going to be a freshman at Texas A&M just down the road. So he's going to major in mechanical engineering and probably come home a lot, even though we're about to be empty nesters. So, Yeah. Uh, and then just a brief background, my wife and I are also both missionary kids. So my dad and grandpa were church planters to Japan with CRC World Missions, and then her folks were in Argentina, uh, also with World Missions. So missions runs deep in our blood, and that's kind of been the focus for my whole ministry out of seminary. Um, Right now, I'm a pastor of an established church, but we're doing a lot to start new churches, daughter churches. And so in addition to the role I play as pastor of our church, I also work 30% of my time for resonate global mission helping to get all those oh. church plans
0: going. So awesome. I I'd love to hear just quickly, um how do you think your role of kind of growing up as a missionary kid affects the way you view your, your ministry in the local congregation? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, two two things
1: just jumped to mind. One is just the love for missions, you know, growing up in that environment, but also like the cross-cultural, I don't know, competencies or Sensitivities, just It's part of who I am. Um, I have a good friend. We grew up together and he's like me, his parents, missionaries. So we're both Anglo, but we both grew up in Japan. And uh, he and his sister are about the same age, both Anglo, grew up in Japan, but he has two adopted um, uh, siblings who are both Asian and Japanese and Filipino, but they grew up in the States when their folks moved back to America. So Mm -hmm. their folks joke that uh, their kids are uh, eggs and bananas. Uh, so my friend and his sister are white on the outside, but really yellow on the inside. And then his siblings are, you know, bananas, yellow on the outside, but white on the inside. So We, <laughs> we have a lot of fun with, you know, cross-cultural, third-culture kid jokes and stuff like that. But it truly, it's given me um, a lot of appreciation for people from all different backgrounds. And the irony is, in our context, we're doing a lot of work with Hispanic CRC pastors and I don't speak a lick of Spanish, <laughs> so but we do a lot with Google Translator and you know make it work. So God's been gracious that way.
0: Yeah, Amen. And I suppose that's probably helped too. You you know saying you were pastoring in New Jersey for a while and then pastoring in Seattle for a while and now pastoring, you've kind of been at the three furthermost points of the United States and now in Texas. And I suppose having that kind of cross cultural awareness has helped serving in those different areas as well.
1: Yeah. The, the big thing is we're trying to stay away from Mecca. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but no, yeah. In all seriousness, you know, we, we love, you know, I mean, I grew up in Tokyo, it's over 30 million people metro. It's bigger than the population of Canada. So I'm used wow. to big cities and, you know, New York, well, Northern New Jersey where we're at was basically greater New York and Houston passed up New York as the most diverse city in the U S several years ago. So yeah, it's it's a very rich environment for ministry and you know, people just keep coming and uh, I try not to mess it up, right? What God's doing with sending us a lot of new planters and pastors. So
0: Yeah. Amen. Well, I would love to dive in deeper on that, but uh, but what one of the things that we're wanting to do now uh with this podcast is spend some time reflecting on uh, you know, this past synod. There's a lot of conversation going about it, and we really wanted to help people process it by talking to some of the delegates at synod. And so uh, you were a delegate at this past synod. I guess one of the first questions would be, was this your first time at synod or have you been a delegate previously to synod? Uh, no, it's my second time.
1: So I went 20 years ago in 2002. And then this was my second time
0: going this year. Okay. And so did you come into this synod with some fear and trepidation?
1: Um, yeah, probably no different than anybody else, right? The the intimidation of the agenda, 1400 pages, and then the weightiness of the topic. So yeah, I wasn't going in blind, you know, a little bit anxious in some ways, but trusting God to work. So
0: yeah, amen. And so one of the things we were we were going to ask everybody is kind of what was your role at Synod? Mm-hmm. Uh, what advisory committee did you serve on? And then what was your role in that advisory committee? Yeah, sure. So a couple things.
1: I was a delegate from classes Rocky Mountain. And our church was actually just in the queue, you know, to send somebody. So uh, they sent me. And then I was also, prior to Synod, asked with our new denominational prayer shepherd, John Hookama to be one of the prayer facilitators for all the breakout groups. So as you know, we met several times prior to Synod, you know, online. So I got to lead a couple of those prayer times. And then at Synod, I I was on advisory committee 7th. Uh, That's the Ecumenical Interchurch Relations Committee and Heresy. And then it was actually chair of that committee.
0: Wow. So, yeah. So you had the, you had, you were chair of the the big heresy committee, right? (laughs) That was the, that sounds, that sounds really weighty. Um, And, uh, you know, uh, we, you and I had talked and Willie and I have talked too. Obviously, we realize we can't talk about what happened in advisory committee. Those were closed sessions. But, well, we can talk about some of the conversations that happened on the floor. Um, did, you, did you feel like, um, man, I don't think this is out of step. You can tell me if I'm out of step. But did you feel like the conversation that happened on the floor of Synod was fairly representative of the conversation that happened in your advisory committee?
1: Yeah, I do. And, and that's a great question. And, and I think a point that a lot of people who weren't at Synod don't really realize the tone of what happened, right? So both within the committee, and I think I can speak freely on that, the tone was really amazing. And then on the floor of Synod as well, getting into some really complex, you know, kind of hard discussions, there was a really nice tone uh, as delegates talked back and forth. And um, in our committee, we had a couple different majority-minority reports, um, you know, but those were, again, you know, pretty similar in the end. And then everybody was probably saying the same thing at the end. So yeah, the tone was really good. I'm really am thankful for how it all went.
0: Yeah. And so kind of the, one of the big ones coming out of your committee was um, this overture about penal substitutionary atonement. And so, and there has been a lot of kind of conversation about that. Well, there's a lot leading up to Synod, and then there's been some questions coming out of it on, okay, did did Synod declare it a heresy? Or... And why or why didn't they? And so, would you want to help people understand a little bit about how we came down on synod on that issue?
1: Yeah, that's that's a great question, and and hopefully, I can shed some light on what happened. So, there was an overture from uh, Classis Ileana, and they were requesting that we declare the denial of penal substitutionary atonement a heresy. So that was one of the overtures that we processed. And then, parallel to that, there was also a report from the Council of Delegates. A little like task force on what is heresy, and then how do you know, and what are the parameters and criteria, and so forth. And, and the background on that was in 2019, uh, synod declared kinism a heresy. But in the same breath, they realized that you know they'd done this once before with apartheid in '84. They declared that a heresy. But when they declared kinism a heresy, everybody said, "Yeah, that's a no-brainer." But how do we know what is heresy? We don't have a good definition and parameters. So they. They um, uh, issued a study committee, and that study committee reported back, uh, and so we processed that report in parallel to that overture from Classis Indiana. And I was really thankful to read the report. I think it helped guide both how we processed it with the advisory committee, and then what happened on the floor of Senate. Um, So in the end, we did not declare denial of penal substitutionary atonement a heresy. And and here's why. Well, and what? But what we did do? Let me step back. Is say that it's a, a serious deviation of sound doctrine. You know, even with um, accountability, with discipline, and so forth. And so, to go back to that study report, you know, when you're dealing with heresy, they gave kind of five five things that heresy is not, right? Because you want to be really careful with what you call. You don't want to just label everything a heres. A heretic. Everybody a heretic. Everything a heresy. So heresy uh, is always something that happens within the church. So it's not like apostasy or unbelief or paganism, right? Those are all things outside the church. But within the church, it's also, there's different levels of false teaching. So it's not on the level of like a schism where, you know, churches may disagree on children at the Lord's supper table, for example, but it's, it's not heresy. You just disagree on that. And also there's, there's weighty matters that we would say are confessional to us as reformed believers in the CRC that are confessions uh, that we would consider false teaching, but we would have put it on the level of um, a heresy uh, because there may be other brothers and sisters within the church globally that maybe see it differently. And one example they gave was infant baptism. It's, it's clearly within our confessions. We believe it, you know, there's accountability with it, all that. Um, but is it, a, is it right for us to call our Baptist brothers and sisters heretics? Right. So, yeah. so probably not. So that was kind of like the, the background, uh, with the report, um, on heresy. And then, so when we got to the overture, we looked at it and, you know, I mean, we all said, this is, this is serious, <laughs> right. Um, you know, the atonement is the, the core of the gospel. So, but as we got into that two things surfaced and, um, one was, you know, somebody had mentioned in the Eastern Orthodox Church that they would deny this. So we're like, oh, that, that's, we better be a little cautious here. What is that? And and um, and they, they said in the report to very, be very cautious about labeling everything a heresy. And we actually added a line on the other side that said, but not to shrink away, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if something is. So there's a caution, but also we don't want to, you know, just be paralyzed because at times you do need to label things a heresy. So with, with the, the overture, we did not declare the denial of penal substitutionary atonement a heresy because of what the Eastern Orthodox church supposedly said that, you know, they would deny that. Uh, Also to distinguish, you know, if we're just talking about general substitutionary atonement, I think everybody would say, of course, that's, that's central to the gospel and, and uh, you know, we didn't address that, but that would, in my mind, be a clear heresy, right, to deny that. Yeah. But the overture was asking for penal substitutionary atonement, which is one of many different kinds of substitutionary atonement. It's the legal uh, side to that, just like there's you know, temple language and relational language yeah. and others. And so we're like, okay, well, let's, let's go with the parameters of what is heresy, what is not. Um, also, just to be clear, there are other theories of atonement, and, and people can preach and teach about that, but that's not—that's and that's not wrong. It's biblical. Uh, but the the overture was asking for the—you know—is the denial of penal substitutionary atonement a heresy? So, given all that, given what we heard about the Eastern Orthodox Church, what they would believe, we said, okay, well, maybe we got to be cautious about just labeling it heresy. But clearly, and this is where Mary Vandenberg, our, our staff advisor, was very helpful from Calvin Seminary. She said clearly. Calvin taught this Clearly, it's all through the catechism. The the uh, overture made clear, right? It's, it's biblical. It's in our confessions. Uh, so we, we, we felt the weight of that. And both the majority and the minority report talked about how it's confessional, talked about how there's already discipline in place. And the only disagreement between the two is that the minor, minority report just said it's it's kind of redundant because we already hold it as confessional. We already have discipline. We don't need to accede to the overture because it's not heresy. But the majority report, even though they said all that, also said there is a sense of urgency and importance because there is, first of all, a lot of confusion about what is penal substitutionary atonement. It's part of our core teaching. And some people are outright denying it. And so we wanted to not just say, you know, this is this is uh, serious to deny it, but even repeat there uh, some discipline that could be there if you would deny it. So, that's kind of what we said on the floor of synod a summary of of how it came to be that that synod spoke that way and I, I hope that's a helpful summary
0: yeah for sure yeah and i was uh i was i was pleased by where the advisory committee came out on that um i i think i mentioned that from the floor of synod too that i had done quite a bit of work with uh with the overture and ran it by a bunch of my friends who are really theologically minded pastors and a couple who have PhDs in systematic theology. And, and they said the same thing that the, that the advisory committee came out with saying, I'd be careful to call it heresy, but it definitely puts you outside the reformed camp and outside of our confessions. Our confessions are full of sub penal substitutionary atonement language. And so if someone's in the Christian Reformed church teaching against that, they would be worthy of discipline and they're, and they're outside of that. But to declare it a heresy is, is maybe taking a little step too far because I don't remember the parameters, but basically one of the ideas is if you call someone a heretic, you put them outside the camp of Christianity, right? And so that's a, that's a really strong statement. And we want to be careful, but I think you're right. We don't want to shy away from it either, but we want to be careful when we deny it. So I think we came down in a really good place on that conversation that where we can say, this is where we stand in the CRC regarding penal substitutionary atonement. We actually do see it as a beautiful, good yep. doctrine. And we want our you know pastors and, and office bearers teaching these things. Um, but we're not going to say right now, anyways, that those who deny that are, are not Christians because there are some faithful brothers and sisters who it's not even that they necessarily deny it. They just have a different nuance of penal substitutionary atonement yeah, uh, yeah. Than we do, and uh, and they wouldn't be quite comfortable calling it, yeah, using that terminology. So yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, I'm trying to remember what else. What was there was one other. Um, oh, one thing I wanted to say too. One of the things I really thought was helpful. Um, I, again, I I think I spoke to this too. I I was thankful that we didn't just. You know, you had mentioned the minority report said, um, we've already got all this stuff in our, you know, in our church order and whatever, so we don't really need to accede to the overture. But one of the things I found really helpful is, like you mentioned, um, bringing this to the forefront again, and just kind of standing firm here again, is just really good for the church. And so it's actually really spurred a lot of conversations with people as I've run into them who have said, what is penal substitutionary atonement anyways i i don't know that language and so you know i start the conversation usually by saying um jesus died for my sins yeah. and then, and then the penal part is he bore my wrath right yeah. Yeah. and uh and they go oh people are denying that right but but what it has done is just kind of reaffirming this has helped um bring those conversations up and then reaffirm that doctrine in the churches like this wasn't this isn't just some disconnected reality from the local churches actually bringing it up at synod having the conversation at synod and then talking about it filters its way down into the churches and then reaffirms our that we hold to this view and that this is a, a beautiful teaching so um, yeah, i was I, yeah, I was thankful for that
1: yeah me me too and uh, first of all i was really thankful for the guys at- are the folks at Class of Siciliana. I, I didn't get to talk to them, but, you know, just a shout out to them. I was thankful that the overture came because, like you said, it did put it in the spotlight. And, you know, even though we didn't accede technically to that overture, hopefully it accomplished what we're all hoping for is that's to not just spotlight, but to guard a very core central doctrine. Because um, as we talked in our advisory committee, as, you know, several people mentioned on the floor of Synod, there is a lot of confusion. You know, and it and again, it's not bad to teach other theories. That's biblical, but you you don't want to deny this. You know, and so just to keep that in front and center, and yeah. So,
0: yeah, amen. Now, um, maybe before we move on, uh, was there another uh, overture or another matter from your advisory committee that came up on the floor of synod that that had a quite a bit of discussion around it?
1: Yeah, the other real big one um, was from Greater Los Angeles, uh, Overture Eight, and it was uh, um, about white supremacy and uh, anti-racism. So you know, somebody at Senate said to be, "Oh no, you're going to hit the third rail, right?" <laughs> and yeah. so, um, but again, it was it was a great discussion within the advisory committee. Um, if you look at the agenda, there was a majority and a minority report. And the minority report just, just had two guys, and they were basically saying, we want to approve the whole thing. There's a lot of issues here, and uh, it's an important matter. Um, so, and, and just to back up a little bit, so we we had five things on our agenda. Um, not a lot, not like Committee 8 with all the HSR stuff, you know, but just five things. We took the first day on Friday to deal with the four of them. And then the last one, which was this greater Los Angeles overture, we spent all of Saturday. And we thought we'd be done by noon or early afternoon, you know, but we slowed things way down and we went from 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. Right. Took a long time that day to discuss it. And I'm really, really glad we did because we just did a lot of listening. And so what it did is it teased out um, both, you know, the spirit behind the overture. And, um, you know, what we were told is there's a a, a church in greater Los Angeles, Um, you know, back in the day it was started, you know, a lot of Dutch people, but, with changing demographics, it changed and uh, more of an African-American community. And they, they said, you know, we've, we've done a lot of things with racial reconciliation and diversity training. We've um, said a lot of things. It's all great. But there's still a, a gap in how we experience that on the ground in our context. So that that church and that class, I think they spent two years just, you know, praying about this, reflecting on it, putting this overture together. And what the overture was basically saying is, here's here's a list of like eight things that we think could help to just move the needle forward in this area. It's kind of like a laundry list of do betters kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So we got that and um, we had uh, Dr. Reggie Smith with us, you know, from the denomination, he was very helpful. And, and what we did was we, we tried to listen to the gap that, you know, that classist was highlighting for us that still exists and talk about that with ourselves. Uh, but also about the specifics of the overture and then, you know, some other things that may, maybe the overture missed. And um, so I think we all agreed. And I, I said this as the chair at the floor of synod, we've come a long ways, but we have more, more work to do. And you heard several other delegates talk about that, but what also became clear is that there are some issues of language and terminology that are not always clear and and can even be hot-button issues and, you know, really divide people, polarize people. So what we did is, is we only um, put forward four of the eight recommendations that we thought would be helpful. Um, and then we put a big preamble in the majority report. And we said, you know, it's a sad day that these issues in the church have to be so deeply polarizing. And we want to make sure whatever we do with this uh, comes from Scripture, that it's a biblical. And also that it's framed with the gospel. You know, we don't want to just receive from culture what culture is saying about these things and then pair it back to culture, what culture wants to hear. And so, I, you know, we had such a good discussion about that in the committee because it, it both, you know, met the need of people that were saying, yeah, we got a lot more work to do. But also really addressed a deep concern about language and terminology that's unclear and maybe not even un- maybe not even biblical. And so that preamble really helped. And then I think just the way we presented it helped. And I was excited, like the first recommendation and part of the second had to do with preaching. And we're basically saying, we want the gospel to be front and center in how we, how pastors, you know, preach about this. And so I, I felt like it was really well received at synod. And then even the, the, the guy that did the two guys that did the minority report, he got up, the main guy stood up and he said, you know, I'm, I am put this minority report forward, but I'm strongly in favor of the majority report. And let's pass this. Let's celebrate that we've done a lot, but we got more work to do. But let's do that in a biblical and, a, you know, gospel-centered way. And so that, again, the, the spirit of the whole thing I thought was really good. And, and the one thing that the last recommendation in that was about listening, that we would encourage all leaders at all levels and denominations to just listen, because listening produces empathy. And Reggie complimented us. He said, you guys have you know, spent all Saturday just basically doing a lot of listening in your committee. And he said, I, I hope you can be a model for the rest of the denomination in whatever settings those that, that listening happens. But it's important to hear people both with some of the pain and brokenness they come to with this, but also it's important to hear the, the concerns, the objections with terminology that isn't helpful. And all of that requires really deep listening.
0: Yeah. Amen. Yeah. No. I. I also appreciated that because I think uh, we have a hard time, especially this this issue uh, issue of uh, you know white supremacy, racism. You know, all of that that's going on. It's such a hot button issue in our culture right now that we have a hard time listening from either side. When some people are saying, "Slow down. Slow down." There's some issues here. We want you to listen to them. Um, And then, and then others, and then some people start saying, this isn't even a problem, let's stop. And, and it's like, just everybody needs to calm down. And we need to have some really solid conversations, but it's hard to even, even, uh, you know, I, I was in a group with a group of pastors a couple months ago, and we were talking about some of the race issues in America, and we were wrestling through that. And, and I decided to kind of take the role of devil's advocate a little bit. And I started kind of poking back, but And this is with guys that I love. I know they appreciate me. And I started just feeling so tense the whole time because I was poking and saying, well, what if, what if this is the issue? What if this is, and trying to poke at things. And, uh, and I felt this massive tension in me not to talk because I felt like I was going to anger people. And really, I just wanted us to think, not even that I disagreed with what they were saying, but just wanting to kind of push the conversation and help us think differently. And so it's it was just helpful encouragement again for us to go out there, have some conversations and really listen, um, listen to concerns coming from both ways and try to find, like you said, a biblical gospel-centered way forward. Yeah. And so uh we'll be praying that churches start doing that and that we can do that as a denomination as well.
1: Yeah, this is it's kind of like Eugene Peterson said, or right? it's a long obedience in the same direction. We've come a long ways, we celebrate a lot, we've got more work to do. And so I appreciated hearing from, you know, some delegates saying, yeah, I'm, here's the impact even today at Synod, you know. and But other delegates, like there was, there was a gal at our table from Classes from Mesa, Deborah Chi, and she says, you know, this, this term white supremacy, you know, if you mean by that, that I don't love well at times, yes. If you mean by that, sometimes I'm prejudiced, yes. If you mean by that, I'm, I'm at times racist, yes. I agree with all that. But if you mean by this term that, you know, I'm the same as these people in white hoods with KKK, you know, white supremacists I'm not that. So let's let's yeah. be clear about terminology. Please help me, you know, with how we talk about this kind of stuff. So
0: Yeah. Amen. Well, I want to move on. One of the questions I wanted to ask of um, all of the delegates coming out of Synod is um, what encouraged you at Synod while, while you were there or even leading up to Synod? What what has been encouraging to you? Yeah. So let me, let me say two things about that. First of all, I want to give
1: you an image. And for those of us who are there, it's, it's hard to convey, right. You know, to people that weren't there. Um, But for many, I think we'd all say it was a hard week, but good week, you know, and the image I have is actually from uh, Joshua chapter five, where the people of Israel are finally ready to go conquer the promised land. Right. They've done the 40 years in the wilderness. They've crossed the, the Jordan river. And they're ready to go conquer Jericho. And Joshua 5, 13 to 15, Joshua comes face to face with this angel from the Lord. And he says, which side are you on? And the angel says, neither. And Joshua said, well, what message, you know, do you have for me? And this angel says, I'm here as a commander from the army of the Lord. Take off your sandals. The place you're standing is holy ground. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes we can, you know, pit one, people against each other and there's winners and losers and, you know, we're so polarized in our culture and that filters into the church. But at synod, I did, I did feel like it was both a holy week. God showed up. And I, you know, even though there was a clear statement by the church on these issues and you could, you could cast it as winners and losers. I thought it was more like God spoke and I was thankful specifically both for what happened and how it happened. Yeah. So what happened, there were some big ticket issues, right? Like HSR and the confessional status and discipline for Nealon. All of that was like 70, 75%, you know, really strong majority. So what happened? I'm 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 thankful that we acted according to what the, the Bible would say. But how it happened also was was amazing. And I think you really had to be at Synod to to feel the Spirit's presence. Uh, so many people felt, you know, said we felt being lifted up with prayers. Um, there is a spirit of gentleness, for example, even with the discipline for Neeland, right? A lot of delegates said this is restorative, not retributive. There was a kindness, even as, you know, delegates on both sides talked to one another. A lot of listening that happened and being respectful, even if they saw things differently. And then a genuine humility, where even though we're talking about big issues like sin, right, with HSR, A lot of delegates publicly confessed their own sin, you know, some sexual sins, pornography, for example. A couple delegates got rebuked or ruled out of order, (laughs) and uh, one of them came back to apologize to the group, you know. And so there was a a real sense of uh, humility. And, you know, with that Joshua story in Joshua 5, I love how the Bible Project guys put it. They said at the end of the day, the question isn't, is God on our side? But it's are we on God's side? So when we talk, you know that that phrase in the Lord's Prayer, "Lord, your will be done," that's what I felt like sin was all about. Lord, how can we align our wills to yours? And that cuts, you know, both ways. It's not just about winners and losers. But I think God was speaking to all of us. And you know, for me, I came way more humble. Realized I I got more work to do with being compassionate and you know make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit, even though we're very divided and all that. So, I mean, God showed up in a lot of ways and I think that's what was the most encouraging thing for me to say.
0: Yeah. Amen. hundred percent. And that, that is one of the things I've, I have struggled to, to convey to other people, just the, the spirit in the room, right? Like you can, you can watch the live streams and you can see what's going on. You can hear the conversations. You can get a sense of the, of the, I don't know, the the compassionate way, I think we disagreed with one another, you get somewhat of a sense, but you don't get the same sense. Because you're not in the room, you're not seeing everyone's faces and demeanor and all of that. And so, so even when people spoke fairly firmly, and, uh, and forcefully from the floor, I didn't feel like it was always necessarily even out of order or angry, but it was just there there was passion and conviction and and you could see it being received as such from from everybody i was um i think i've probably said this already on the podcast but i was so encouraged by the way that that conversation went that it didn't turn into shouting matches and name calling or or any of that um but but we were really able to have a a conversation and a debate i guess or technically a deliberation Mm-hmm. That uh, that I feel like was truly guided by the Holy Spirit. Where um, now I know some people left, right? Some people did leave Synod saying this was not of God and this was not of the Holy Spirit, right? And I and I've heard some of those criticisms, but I would have to say, still, the vast majority mm-hmm. left saying um, the decisions we made seemed really good to us as a body, yeah. and it seemed like the Holy Spirit was very much part of that that conversation, and we all we all really felt it.
1: Yeah, and just just to add quickly to that, like we always say that God leads us through his word and his spirit, right? So I appreciated, like on the one hand, a lot of people referenced scripture, right? And the deliberations. So God's word was central to the reports, the discussion, everything. But again, the spirit was leading. And and just two quick comments. One was public. The other was more one-on-one with me. I think I can share this, but um, the public one, you know, somebody stood, stood up in the context of the discipline with Neeland Avenue. And he said, you know, I'm for this. It's the right thing to do. He was, you know, for that. But he also asked the question, what can we learn from Neeland?" Which I thought was a really courageous thing to say. And I've been thinking about that, too. Like, I totally disagree with what they did. But I love the spirit of that question because all of us are called to love and have compassion for people and whatever walk of life they are. And Neeland's really tried to do that even if it's not in a way that, you know, we would say is biblical or whatever. So, you know, you got that side, and that was coming from a more orthodox, you know, conservative delegate. On the flip side, there was uh, a delegate on the other side, and, you know, he said, Andy, I know you and I maybe see this differently, and uh, but as I've been listening, he said, I've been listening, you know, carefully to all the, our non-Anglo brothers and sisters. And he said, pretty much all but one have stood up and said, I'm for HSR. And, you know, we got to push back on this as a sin and, you know, all that kind of stuff. They're Orthodox, biblical and understanding. And we also heard from Colin Watson, our executive director, about these 39 Venezuelan churches that have already joined the CRC and where God is working through his spirit in a lot of the non-Anglo church plants and ministries. And he said, if that's the future of where God is leading us and that's where you know, most of our non-Anglo brothers and sisters are not to mention the global church. He said, I I don't want to get in the way of that. Even though personally, it's hard for me, per se, it's going to be hard in our context as we wrestle with all this. He said, I want to submit to what God's doing with this church. And I was just blown away by that comment, you know, and again, it's the Holy Spirit and so many examples like that of just God moving, you know, and unless you were there, it's hard to really experience that.
0: That's all we have for this week. Stay tuned next week for part two of Synod Reflections from Andy Seitzma. But until then, don't forget this is Christ's church. And he bought it with his blood. And we've been warned that wolves will come in trying to destroy the flock. So keep a close watch on your life and on your doctrine. Preach the word in season and out of season. And keep fighting the good fight in this messy reformation.